Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Financial Times, this is Hard Currency. David Cameron this week rolled out the red carpet for President Xi of China as the UK courts the world's second biggest economy for investment funding for big infrastructure projects like rail and nuclear. But the focus of the FX market is what's going on in China itself. How wobbly is the Chinese economy? What impact could that have on its trading partners? And are we in for a sustained period of market instability? Welcome to Hard Currency, the FX weekly podcast examining the latest fun and games in the world of Forex. My guest this week is Simon Derrick, Chief Market Strategist at BNY Mellon. Simon, the week started with China GDP numbers coming out at 6.9% growth, which the markets were rather relieved about, weren't they? I think they were, actually, but we get this curious good news is bad news sometimes, whereby a slightly better number gives maybe the central bank little less space to do something on monetary policy, which in turn feeds through into a little more negative attitude on assets. So I thought it was interesting that we actually saw a fairly sharp stumble in the Shanghai Composite uh, in just a couple of days later, mm. and we threw it a bit percent off. So I think that the signs are that we're still not quite out of the woods yet. You wouldn't be that surprised if you had a further degree of turmoil. I think it's fair to say, though, given what we know about the steps that PBOC has taken over the course of the last couple of months, that the pressure's less. You remember that the, the People's Bank sent something like $94 billion in, in August, at least in terms of the reserve decline, defending the currency. We know in September it was more like 44. So we know that that pressure is declining. Mm. We've seen that turnaround in the onshore, offshore premium switch, which suggested investors a little more confident. But I think you'd be a brave man given how far we come in the Chinese economy to believe it's quite over yet. But the market is also learning to live with such a focus on China. Um, we, didn't, we didn't used to be so, we're zero in on you know, China GDP numbers as, as we are now. Um, and that suggests that the market can live with you know, degrees of uh, negative numbers coming out of China as well. I think what's interesting to me, though, is the reasons why that's the case. It's, it's easy enough to see why you may believe Australia is closely connected to that, given the very strong trade connections and obviously the commodity story. It's easy to see why commodity currencies more generally would follow that story. What's interesting over the course of the last few months, of course, was how the Fed reacted. Mm. We had that move in September, or the failure to make a move in September by the Fed, when quite clearly they'd been signalling in, going into the summer that they were going to make a shift. And it was made quite explicit in Janet Yellen's press conference that China was a major reason why they'd held off. Mm. And so here we are, we've got a market-dependent Fed, and the market they seem really quite dependent on at the moment is actually China. And so we started to look at events there and wondering how that feeds through into Fed policy over the course of the next few months. 
that's how important China's become so for what, us. What sort of an environment are we? A kind of a stay-put environment, aren't we? Uh, what, what does it resemble in, in recent history? Well, I think that, that, that to me, is the, the central question here. Um, and I think that here we are, three, four years into a dollar bull market. Uh, we've had a rolling series of emerging market crises over the last few years. For those of us a certain age, it does remind me of the late 1990s. It's yeah. exactly what we saw. And, of course, this summer astonishingly similar rhythm to that you saw in the summer of 1998. A Fed that was hawkish. We then have a major crisis involving a devaluation, although I would argue that China really just stumbled in a policy move. Back in 1998, it was Russia. We come out of the summer with a Fed that's far more dovish than we went in. We had a degree of turmoil going into the end of the third quarter, exactly as we had in 98. But then the cumulative actions of the central banks to try and stabilise markets back then actually saw a turnaround in risk uh, aversion in the fourth quarter of 1998. Commodity prices stabilised and actually started going back up again. Of course, that's exactly what's happened as we got into how, the show. How, how, therefore, will what happened in 99 and 2000? What's the next thing to look at? That's the interesting part about this. I mean, nobody would ever pretend history will repeat sure. itself, but it gives us a benchmark against which we can look at these things. And I think what it really makes me focus on is, if we go back to 1998, the fact that the Fed was so market-dependent then it cut rates three times in the matter of three months because it was worried about the fallout from the declining stock prices and LTCM, that the whole concept then of the Greenspan put started to grow, mm. that the Fed would be there to protect the market, whatever happened. And of course, what investors did in that circumstance was the entirely logical thing of taking as much risk as possible. So if we have a Fed this time around that's following the same basic pattern and like i do believe yeah absolutely yeah. that we have you know i suspect someone's built into the fed's dna now after 30 years of taking this kind of action to stabilize yeah. markets if the market believes that is the case and if we don't get a move next week and if the indications are that maybe the fed won't move until 2016 first quarter mm. then all of a sudden that idea will really will become ingrained and what you find then is a search for yield and a search for hard assets. And you could have something that looks a little like 1999. Okay. So just looking at the split that's been quite clearly emerging in the Fed, is that part of the narrative or is that a pushback against the narrative of the Yellen put? Well, I said the great problem we have is we don't have the information from 1998 about quite how everybody was thinking because it was far more opaque at the time. And there are those of us who wish we went back to those kind of days. A little less communication from the Fed would be good. Quite right. But you know, nevertheless, the fact of the matter is that there is a split within the Fed. Yeah. It's clear to see. And also, I think it's true that over the course of the last week or so, there's been a slight shift in the narrative as well. I mean, it's interesting to the number of people who said, well, we, we could be justified in moving this year, but maybe it's just the smallest hints that suggest to me that if we had maybe just a little more turmoil, if we had another poor non-farm payrolls number coming out, that really would cement the idea that, yeah, OK, we're going to wait for 2016, in which case you have uh, a Fed that is all, you know, showing increased caution. You have a Bank of Japan, which potentially could move. Who knows what happens in Europe over the next few months? That, to me, suggests you know, there's going to be a wash of liquidity, and that liquidity is going to be searching for yield. OK, so... but. 
I suppose in the sh- let's look at some of the short-term issues that are around uh, the ripple effects of China in Canada, which had its election on Monday. Bank of Canada policy meeting on Wednesday kept things steady. Um, so, like everywhere else, I mean, Canada's waiting, waiting for what the Fed. Yeah, does, I, I think it's interesting. He's good. Canada to me is is caught in this confluence yeah. of different forces. Yes, the China effect, absolutely, because of what it means for commodities, uh, and of course, a slowdown in a continued slowdown in China feeds through to continued slowdown in growth for for Canada. You saw them moderating their growth forecasts going out. That obviously was one a major part of the decline in the Canadian dollar that we saw uh, in the middle of the week. On the other hand, if the Fed remains on hold and stays on a pretty cautious mode and commodities start to pick up as a result, that's going to feed through into a stronger Canadian dollar. So actually, it could be pretty volatile on this 130 level until we get a clearer sign of actually what the Fed's going to do. And at that point, if I'm right, and they stay on the accommodative side, I actually think the Canadian dollar comes back and comes back strongly. But it is definitely caught in the confluence of forces. And it's not just in Canada, but we see across emerging markets, we're actually seeing a bit of a rally in gold at the moment. So this weakening in the dollar for the moment is giving some investors uh, some room to th- at least think about yeah. places that have been on the decline. Uh, you- I mean, I think what's interesting is that, and I should say that gold has come off a little bit over the course of the last couple of days. But I think the fact that we're up 7 or 8% from the lows, despite the fact that actually inflation expectations continue to decline. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you did pretty well at the same kinds of levels you were at in 2009. Or prior to that, you're probably going back to 1998, actually. Um, you've got very, very low in, in, um, inflation expectations in place, and yet gold's going up. So what it's really reflecting is... The fact that actually you just get absolutely no yield whatsoever yeah. from holding any of the mainstream currencies yeah. and people are looking for something hard to hold. So it's not about this inanimate lump of metal, this barbaric relic. It's about what it tells us about the main fiat currencies. And what it actually says is investors are becoming increasingly cautious about the mainstream developed world currencies. Yes. Um, well, one currency where we've seen a little bit of life today, at least on Thursday, is, is in sterling and the some pretty remarkable yeah. retail sales, which apparently is all down to the Rugby World Cup. But uh, I suppose the context of this is Again, can we see sterling on its own or is it, again, totally dependent on what's happening elsewhere? I think it would be unfair to say it's entirely dependent on what's happening elsewhere. But I think a lot of the forces that have driven sterling over the last few years are fading. I mean, we've no longer got the undervaluation against the euro that was so uh, stark four, five, six years ago. You know, I think most people would see where euro is against sterling right now is fairly reasonable value. I think if you look to get sterling against the dollar, I think at these kinds of levels, most people will recognize it's probably reasonably priced. Mm. So there's none of those extremities that can cause a, a currency to move sharply. Um, we've also got the fact that we've already been led down the garden path once with regard to heights and interest rates. And I think there is a certain degree of skepticism within the market about when we're going to hike, actually going to hike. I mean, 
I may I actually think that we may well wait until the Fed moves before we actually make a rate hike here. And of course, we've got the Brexit story now. I think after you know the last eighteen months, we're all hugely sceptical about referendums and about polls and about trying to read too much into them. But I think we all recognise that story is going to become more prevalent. We're in about the EU referendum. I suspect as we go into 2016, that story will start to weigh on sterling. So I struggle to see sterling making major gains from here, to be honest. I wonder if President Xi raised the issue of Brexit with David Cameron this week. I somehow <laughs> doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it as well. My thanks to Simon Derrick of BNY Mellon. Please email me on roger.blitz at ft.com if you have any thoughts about Forex and any thoughts about this podcast. And please keep up to date with all the latest Forex news and analysis, which is on our website at ft.com slash fx. Please join us again next week. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Goodbye.